All right, so uh, one of our values as a church is the value of family, and that's the idea that we are a relational church, that we care about each other, uh, that we, we're not just a church. We don't want to be a church that's just an event you go to, a uh, building. We don't even have a building. It's not, a church isn't a building you go to or just an event you go to, um, but, you know, Sunday worship gatherings is a space where God's people gather, where the church gathers, that the church is a people, that we're a community, and so there's community moments that are important uh, that we like to announce that maybe wouldn't get announced in another church if you just viewed it as what's happening as an organization uh, in terms of initiatives or programs or whatever. But, and we, we talk about those, but we also want to talk about the relational realities and dynamics. And so we have an announcement, a family announcement that involves a new baby. Uh, and so to help me with that, we've got Miss Julia Price. Okay, our dear friends, family, brothers and brother and sister, there's just two of them, had a baby, baby girl Hopkins. Oh. Stephen Abigail, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> forgot, <laughs> got distracted. Um, don't ask her name. There's not one yet, but it's a girl. And she was born April 29th on Friday at 5:45 p.m. She was seven pounds and 13 ounces and 21 inches long. Anyone wants to explain to me why anybody cares about that? Let me know. <laughs> but just so you know, <laughs> true, true, true. Anyways, um, <laughs> I'm going to be doing their meal train, so if you want to be on it, let me know. And um, I don't know when they'll be back, but congratulate them and send them well wishes and get excited for your new niece. Yay. All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll dive into our time of teaching. Um, Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for your word, that it really is a lamp unto our feet. You are just so gracious to us. Um, you're so kind to us. When we take stock and slow down, there's a lot broken in our life and in this world, but there's a lot that's right, too, in our life and in this world. As we take, you know, we, we, we do, we consider what you've done and who you are and who we are and the way that you choose to reveal yourself to us. And I pray this morning um, you'd reveal and invite us into a way of life that causes people to ask questions about who you are and that we might reveal something of you to them in the way that you revealed something about you to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, so if you're new, we're in a series called Salt and Light, and this series is really primarily about the idea of what the church is called to be in a society or culture, kind of in any society, any culture, any place in the history of the world, um, what should the church be? And this teaching is rooted in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus describes the church as salt and light. And so we spent a few weeks describing what that means. What does it mean to be salty? And so we looked at kind of like the ancient understanding of salts and, and, and then what we can um, draw from that, that we'd be a people who uh, preserve things. We'd be a people who um, are valuable. We'd be a people who uh, makes things taste different, like what we interact with. Uh, I think usually, I love salt, usually gets better, uh, but either way, it's not the same as when salt's been introduced uh, to what it is, and that light does something. It helps us see clearly, it exposes, uh, but also it creates safety, and so we, we've been talking about that, and then, uh, so that's kind of who the church is, and then the last few weeks we've been talking about, if that's who we are, what should we be doing? If who we are is salt and light, what are some ways we can live out or manifest that saltiness? We said we want to redeem the phrase salty, like I'm just salty in here today. 
Uh, so how, how do we live salty lives? How do we live lives that are lives of light? And so um, Maria talked a few weeks ago about sharing who Jesus is. And one of those we're doing that's Alpha. Um, uh, Jackie, last week my wife taught on hospitality, that we'd be people who welcome men and women in um, who aren't necessarily like a part of our church or our community or whatever. People who are different to us in the way that Jesus welcomed us in. And today I'm going to talk about uh, kind of a, an idea that's um, – it's a how it, it's it's kind of a talk that links the two together like a lot, but really it's um, it's it's what type of people we should be that would allow us to be salt and light. And, and so the idea that I want to talk about today is how do we live live lives that make people go, hmm, I wonder about this Jesus. As we think through 2022, what's going to stand out in a positive way in our culture? What what would be Maria talked about the idea of being a provocative person, a pr- provocative friend, if you weeks ago. I really wanted to highlight this today. So um, uh, I have an outline. I do want to say um, I have a friend who took a seminary course on alliteration and sermons. And I want to say I did not take that course, but I think I could do a master class after you see what I came up with. All right. So in 2022, provocative people resist the anxiety pandemic, refuse the ideological polarization and renounce the idolatrous pantheon. Come on. All right. Resist the anxiety <laughs> pandemic, refuse the ideological polarization, and renounce the idolatrous pantheon. And what I want to say is, um, is we're really talking 2022 in a lot of ways. Uh, there are things that our culture is known for right now. Okay, what's our culture known for right now generally, if you had to just throw out some words? Huh? Cancel culture. Okay, literally cancel culture. Our culture is known for cancel. Okay, cancel culture. What else? Outrage. Love some Outrage. Division. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so, so <laughs> and I would also say, as I'm going to argue in a second, we're anxious, okay? We're anxious as heck, okay? Um, and so, yeah, if you think about us right now, uh, it seems like most everyone is polarized, okay? Um, uh, uh, and it seems like everyone is anxious at a, col- at a societal level. There's like anxieties in the air all the time. And we know that because every news story, even before it finishes dropping everyone has an opinion on and they've taken a side and they're angry about it and so what i want to talk about today is is how do we as jesus people live in this society and and and, and the text i want to use to to talk about this from today is i have two of them they're both in first peter and first peter was written when the time was very 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 much in a space of being persecuted and so in first peter chapter two peter writes this He says, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Gentiles in the New Testament is just people who don't know God. We are all, a lot of us here are Gentiles. We have some Jews in the house, but a lot of Gentiles. Um, So that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. And so there's this idea that if we conduct ourselves in a certain way, it's going to lead to people glorifying God. Nothing you see in this text is he calls us strangers and exiles. And an exile is a, um, a good term for exile. They would be like refugee. You're a forced immigrant. You've been forced out of your home space And you are waiting to get back to your home space, your home country, your home nation. And and that's the picture that the New Testament gives followers of Jesus in the world that we live in. That we don't, this isn't our home. 
Earth is not our home. America is not our home. California is not our home. Your house isn't your home. That you actually have a home in heaven. And in the meantime, you're camped out, just like Israel was camped out in Babylon. And God gave instructions to Israel while they lived in Babylon. You're living in a culture that hates me in Babylon, a culture that, that wants nothing to do with me, a culture that dislikes you and oppresses you and mocks you and takes advantage of you. And I want you to be a blessing to those very same people, to love those people, to, 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 to help the culture flourish, even though they're not committed to helping you flourish. But as you do it, don't lose your distinctiveness. Kind of like that stay salt thing. You're in a culture that's not cool with who you are or what you believe. Don't combat that culture and argue with them all the time. Love them, but hang on to what you believe. Hang on to what makes you distinct. And so uh, that's what I want to talk about. How can we do this? Um, 1 Peter 3 adds to it, and we're going to get into that a little bit later in the message. But we want to be such a people that our non-Christian friends would actually go, dude, I don't know what this is. Like, what, what's your story? What are you about? What do you have that I don't have? Not in a way that we're better than them, because we're not. Again, I love the, the definition of evangelism is, you know, uh, evangelism is just, you know, one beggar helping another beggar find some food that's being given out. I've got a good bread guy who's giving me, you know, the bread of life and, and that kind of thing. It's not that I make the best bread. It's that I've been given the best bread, and it's nourishing to me, and it's changing me. And so, uh, real quick, I just want to talk about this. How do we be a provocative people who provoke questions, okay? Provoke questions. Not like sexy provocative. I want to be really clear. Provoke questions. Intrigue. Number one, resist the anxiety pandemic. As many of you guys know, I've spent the last few years studying um, uh, Bowen Family Systems Theory and cohorts and coaching. Uh, and it was started by a man named Murray Bowen, a psychiatrist in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, uh, who began to notice that his patients were impacted by their families for better or for worse. And so he saw people with pretty severe mental health conditions, uh, schizophrenia and stuff like that. And, and he noticed that his patients, it was an inpatient unit, um, when the families would come to visit, the patient's condition would either improve or worsen significantly upon the arrival of the parents and the siblings. And what he realized is something the scriptures teach clearly that no person is an island. That sets of relationships impact one another. That my choices impact you and your choices impact me. Your emotional processes impact my emotions if I'm not paying attention. And again, if, if you grew up in a, a family with a dad or a mom who was an alcoholic or an addict, you know this. Their choices weren't just their choices. They were your family's choices. And so his work was on helping individual people get better not just by focusing in on the individual, but by zooming out and improving the health of the family environment overall. That actually the family environment could contribute to what was wrong with that person. Uh, systems theory helps people notice their uh, reoccurring predictable patterns as a group. A reoccurring predictable pattern as a group. Uh, almost like the family uh, is, is putting on a musical together, like the sound of music or whatever, and they all have the same roles, and they all read from the same script every Thanksgiving every whatever time you're together. And so Bowen, what he would do is he would train the healthiest members of the family to stop reading those lines and instead to read healthier lines that would force everyone else to think through and maybe change their behavior. So you want to disrupt the system. Read a different line. Um, if this seems vague, imagine family members of yours 
Uh, maybe you don't have to imagine this. Maybe you do. But imagine you have a family. Imagine for a second, theoretically, you have family members who don't get along. Okay? Anyone, right? Like, just I know hard. It's like quantum physics. You're like, it's hard to describe or see. Now, here's what, I, here's what you could probably guess is that there's a, usually a rhythm to those conflicts. Even if you're married here today, uh, if you get in fights with your spouse from time to time, I don't do that, but I heard some of you guys dabble in that. Pro by the way, our kids are sick. Jack's not here because she's like, I hate that joke or whatever. Uh, probably, literally, if you sit with a couple and you talk to them, their fights are about usually the same type of stuff around the same type of time. Uh, this type of thing's going on in the background, and these responses happen, da da, da. Um, but, but imagine, right, like you've got a family Thanksgiving, and your Aunt Susie walks into Thanksgiving, and she says something to your mom, who I'm going to name Gina, okay? Interesting choice of shirt for a Thanksgiving dinner, Gina. So Aunt Susie rolls into the kitchen with. Now I want you to imagine your mom, Gina, gets quiet, won't talk directly to her, but is now being passive-aggressive to everyone else at the house, okay? And then your dad, Rick, you have a dad named Rick? Again, just made this up. He's sensing your mom, Gina's upset. He decides to say something. But instead of pulling her aside to talk to her gently, one-on-one, -on -one, and ask if she's okay, Rick goes, what's your problem, Gina? We're trying to have a nice Thanksgiving dinner. You're being so awkward, right? Now imagine your sister, Juliet's like, I'm going to tell a joke now. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> And then your brother James goes outside to smoke. Your mom, Gina, says nothing. She says, I'm fine. It's fine. It's nothing. It's fine. And that goes well into your mom and Susie. You have to tag team on the sweet potato pie in the kitchen after dinner, and you kind of repeat the cycle. Now, Bowen basically calls what that was a reactive system where everyone lets everyone else's anxiety or fear infect them. Bowen would say, um, it, uh, it, it, right, if it's the same play uh, – if it, sorry, Bo would say, um, I wrote this like I talk, and then I, it's not how I talk, so it's a little confusing. <laughs> the order of the words. Long story short, Bo would say, if you are putting on a musical together as a family, using that analogy, um, at some point, if someone changed their lines, the whole thing could improve. There's a chance it could improve. Uh, he would say, hey, Gina, he might coach Gina to say to Susie at the beginning of the whole fiasco, yep, this is the shirt I'm wearing. Uh, it's okay if it's not your favorite. Uh, but I'm not making you wear it. That being said, um, please don't be rude to me in my own house on Thanksgiving. I want to have a successful Thanksgiving with you, Susie. Um, but if you can't be kind, I'll ask you to leave. Like somewhere along that, you might build, that might be three statements that build up over a conversation. But basically like, hey, I'm not going to freak out about this. I'm not going to go take it out passive aggressively on my kids and my husband. Um, I'm just going to look right back at you and say, hey, let's not do that. Right? Uh, Rick the dad could be coached to either let Gina tell him she wants to be talked to. You might notice she's a little frustrated. like, I don't have to make that about me. Just eat my mashed potatoes or whatever. Or you could go, hey, um, pull her aside, right? Hey, are, are you okay? What's going on? But not blast her in front of everyone and make her uncomfortable. Uh, Juliet could decide not to joke to bail the family out of the awkward situation that's been created. And then Susie likely will learn she's going to struggle to be a jerk in this kind of environment where everyone's taking responsibility for themselves and not covering for the unhealthy dynamics. Now that's Bowen Family Systems in a nutshell. And he says biological families have predictable reoccurring patterns, but so do workplaces, churches, nonprofit organizations, and even countries, which we'll get into in a moment, where we impact one another and everyone does the same thing. And they're like dominoes falling into each other. 
There's another guy named Edwin Freeman who studied under Murray Bowen, and he, um, he wrote a book called Friedman's Fables. Uh, it's not a Christian book. He was a rabbi, organizational guy. But he says avoiding the anxiety, like the reactivity, is kind of like being a domino that doesn't fall. All the other ones are falling. You just stay still and you stand. Uh, you decide, hey, I'm going to push back uh, or, or do my own thing. And so here's what I want to say. Our entire nation is a uh, chronically anxious, reactive society, okay? According to um, uh, the idea, um, Bowen actually had a term for this, uh, and it's called societal regression, societal regression. I'm only give this three more minutes, okay? But it's an important concept. Uh, and the idea is this, is that as a society, everyone is stressed out and anxious all the time. There's intense feelings all the time, which means we're really reactive. So the first, first of these four uh, pieces of a reactive society is uh, the fact that they are reactive, chronically anxious societies, that they're, they're reactive. And so it means everyone's on edge. Everyone is making everything about them. Everyone takes everything personally. No one gives the benefit of the doubt, and everything's life or death. Everyone's offended at the drop of a hat. He says, in a chronically anxious workplace, every situation is like this. The second thing that starts to happen is when everyone is anxious and da-da-da-da, um, there's this thing called hurting that takes place. And the idea is, as you go, I don't like this. I need to get people to back me up to, like, fix it. And so the idea, uh, like, hurting like cows. Um, and, uh, and so Friedman says, chronically anxious environments regress to the maturity of the most unhealthy members of the group. So what makes a dysfunctional family dysfunctional is everyone gathers around the most dysfunctional person who, in the worst cases, is the parent or parents, and we all try to make it work for them. Does that make sense? Instead of changing the environment, going, you got to change. We're going to be a part of this thing. So, that, so that's hurting. And then there's blame. And, and this idea is symptoms rather than the systems. Symptoms rather than the systems. So we're all stressed out. We're trying to create crews and rival, uh, you know, cr creating people to uh, agree with us. Um, and sorry, the big idea with hurting is if a decision is going to be made, it's like everyone has to agree. You have to agree with me or I'm offended. If you don't post what I want you to post on social media, I'm offended. Okay? And then there's blame. And this is when you, um, rather than, he says, rather than diagnosing a problem, you just start to point stuff out in each other and you look for someone to blame. You can watch that, right? You, you pass the buck, pass the blame. Uh, and this happens all the time politically, right? Uh, Jackie, a few years ago, she was driving across the country with my mom. My mom has a fear of flying, so she literally drives from S San Diego to Kentucky. And Jackie drove with her across the country. And Jack was like, man, I live my whole life in, on the West Coast. I've never seen these places, like Kansas and stuff. She's driving through, and she's like, they're like boarded up towns. Like it looks like nothing, like it just looks ab completely abandoned. And she said, man, I can see how like, a lot of those people are like, freaking out about losing their jobs. Now, what you need to know about a lot of the jobs that have left is most of them have been lost to robots, and corporations have shipped them outside of the country. But people in the grip of pain and fear who are hurting, they want someone to blame. They want their jobs back, and they want someone to blame, rather than saying, I'm scared because I'm in an economy I was not prepared for the last 50, 60 years of my life. I don't understand all this technology stuff. I'm nervous. Um, it's easier to blame someone. And you have a guy like a Donald Trump come in. By the way, liberals do this all the time. We, I don't have time to do this because it's everyone. He comes in and goes, hey, you know what? It's immigrants. We've got to build a wall. We've got to get your jobs back. Everyone's coming back here. On and on it goes. And what I want you to catch is it's not a bunch of evil people 
who are racist necessarily. There could be some racists in there, don't get me wrong. But it's people going, we're scared and you're speaking to what we're afraid of. Let's do it. Like whatever you want to do, man, you'll save us from whatever this is, which leads to the last uh, piece of a reactive society, which is a quick fix mentality. Quick fix mentality. It's called choosing the least painful solution. And so again, in, in a society like this, first, it's, it's, uh, it, it keeps members in the organization immature. They're never challenged to grow beyond their pain or fear. Like you might have to learn how to function in this new economy. You might have to be grieve a little bit about what's changed. Um, second, it elevates uh, managers, consultants, and executives or sociologists, I'd say now, to the status of savior. They know the right thing to fix everything. And then third, we make bad reactive decisions that are incredibly short-sighted. So again, in a society where everyone's afraid, everyone's anxious, we just make bad, we, 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 we pitch bad ideas quick, okay? This has happened throughout history, uh, Salem witch trials, right? Now again, if, if you thought like witches were taking over your town, I don't know, you'd be scared, right? Like, like just think for a second, I know it sounds crazy now, like there were real witches trying to kill your real babies. That's what you thought, you got caught up in the grip of that. Again, that's the herding mentality, the whole group gets you going, you're like, we got to kill these witches, right? And you look back, you're like, ah, we probably went a little too far, right? Definitely did. Um, Hitler's ascent in Germany. Hitler's ascent in Germany. It's, it's speaking to similar to what happened, not at the same level, but, but people in a, a depressed economy coming out of World War I, Germany's getting destroyed, and he goes, man, um, the Jewish people. And everyone grabs it. There's someone to blame, there's a scapegoat. Um, this might happen in your personal life, right? Buy a house you can't afford. Because the, the, the market's going. It's never going to come back. It's never coming back. I got to do it. And then maybe you, you buy a house you can't afford. Uh, maybe you marry someone who you know brings out the worst in you and causes you to water down your convictions. But you're like, it's the only one that I got. Like, I'm not going to get a chance at another one. See, see how chronic it gets you going? Um, it happens all the time in sports. This is the quick fix mentality. Sports, team starts losing. First conversation, three weeks in Sports Talk Radio. Fire the coach, man. Fire the coach, right? Like, if you think the Lakers were on the coach this year, you weren't watching the Lakers, okay? Got one of finals with them. It's fine. Happened with the Celtics, too. Like, let's, let's trade, you know, whatever. We'll get into it later. <laughs> they had a new coach, new system. It takes time. They're like, let's break up the whole team. It's like, or just be patient and relax. We go on and on and on, um, conservative, liberal, whatever, um, social media, you have to post in solidarity with a group of people pitching an idea that you don't even understand or like push back on a law you haven't read. There was a, um, this conservative crew hit me up about a law in California recently and I read the law, it's just like not what they said it was. Then on the flip side, there's the thing in Florida and I read that and it's like not what it's being, people are saying it, it, it is. And here's the, the big idea, if you don't, we'll cancel you, that's reactive behavior, right? There's a lot of modern day back and forths, quick fixes, scapegoats. What I want you to catch, though, is the house is on fire and no one knows what to do. That's our society right now. Right? Where's the water? I don't know. I don't believe in water. Or if you throw gas, like, it's just going and going and going and going, and everything's controversial. Everything's got a, a debate tied to it. Nothing can just be done together. But what if we were a people who weren't caught up in the hype? Like, what if we were people who could see chaos and chronic anxiety and look at it and go, I can see how they feel that way. I don't need to become that in this moment, though. 
my king is my king, and he takes care of me. So it doesn't matter who's president, because my king is my king. It doesn't matter who has Congress, because my king is my king. I don't have to control people, because my king is my king. I want to read this over you. This is, by the way, the longest point, but I want to read Psalm 23 over you for a second. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you, if you're willing, to close your eyes for a second. Just let me read this text over you. And I just want you to imagine, like, these words are true. What if you believed these? Psalm 23, I'll read the whole chapter. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Amen. This is your reality if you're a faithful follower of Jesus. And the economic downturn doesn't change that. The fear-mongering about COVID doesn't change that or about the government doesn't change that or about the Democrats doesn't change that or about the Republicans doesn't change that or wars and rumors of wars do not change that. This is your king and this is your shepherd. There are scary things in this world that are very scary and they're real and we have to live in this world, but we can do it not from a place of scarcity or fear, but from a space of grace and peace and abundance. What if we were these kinds of people who lived like this was true? Dallas Willard has a book. It's called Life Without Lack. Read it. Go for it. Life Without Lack. And it's this idea that in God's presence, you always have what you need. So we don't have to take on the anxiety around us. We can love people who are really anxious. We don't have to become a part of the anxiety. Number two, um, we need to refuse the ideological polarization. We need to refuse the ideological polarization. Uh, I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 3. And Peter says, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. What do people who don't know God fear? A whole lot of stuff that, that often we fear in the same way for the same reasons. Verse 15, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Verse 16 is huge here for me. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We've got to get this. Now, Peter's talking about sharing the gospel. But 
but certainly that should be our, our highest conviction if we're in, in Christ, the gospel. Even that, we don't get to like be jerks when we share. We don't have to like force it down people's throats. Um, gentleness and respect should be the hallmarkers of Christian and society. Even if we're saying stuff they hate, our content may be very controversial. The way that we talk shouldn't be. There's so many people online that are like these like tough guy Christians telling it like it is. It's like, man, I just think you're being a jerk. Like you can be just as truthful. So I love about like a Tim Keller. He doesn't water down the truth of the gospel. He's not compromising on sexuality or the exclusivity of Christ or any of these things. And he's nice. So important, friends, that um, we refuse. I was going to say, you know you're polarized when your posture is not one of respect and gentleness. You know you've given in. Um, there's this, uh, I came across this website last week. It's called uh, ChooseTruthOverTribe.com. Have you guys seen this? ChooseTruthOverTribe.com. They have a how tribal are you assessment that helps you figure out, like, if you're a little too political. It's a Christian website, and it basically says, hey, are you tribally conservative or tribally progressive? Are you conservative, but, like, your allegiance is to Christ? Are you liberal, but your allegiance is to Christ? Um, and, uh, and it's super helpful. And really what they're getting at is how you approach stuff, not even necessarily your positions, but your pot. We should not be the tribal people. Um, willing to make Jesus look bad to defend our p- political positions. Again, um, no one's going to ask you for the hope that lies within you if you're all about politics, conservative or progressive. It's like, oh, ev- I know people with that hope already all the time, and they're all miserable. <laughs> they're all jerks when they're in power and terrified when they're not. I know those people. I have a king who's always in power. Also, our perspectives, I don't have time for this, um, Ah, man. I don't have time for it. But um, we should not be a part of the polarization in our country. Like, that shouldn't be us. Not saying we don't take stances, um, but that shouldn't be us. Uh, One thing I'll say about the positions. um, The early church was known for a lot of stuff. The the early church had a very, what we would call conservative sexual ethic. Their culture was more progressive and permissive than ours is now. Like, in the upper class in Rome back in the day, um, orgies were like a social thing. You do a couple a month. Uh, there's prostitution at the temples. All that stuff's going on. That offends, sorry, that's just history. Uh, that's there. Uh, there may be little kids in the room, though. Sorry about that. Uh, I knew there's babies, but um, I don't think June got it. I think we're good. Um, very permissive in that area. Christians still going one man, one woman for life. That's the sexual ethic of the, of the New Testament in the early church. They're mocked for it all the time. But they're also, the church simultaneously is the most multi-ethnic Multi-social, it's the only uh, integrated social class movement kind of in history at that time, in the Roman Empire. And so they they look really conservative and really liberal just depending on the issue. I was talking to Royce one time, I was like, I feel like Christians are just like really moderate. Like we're not really this. He's like, no, we're extreme just in two different directions (laughs) all the time. Um, And so, um, and I was like, oh yeah, but we don't fit neatly in anything. We'll talk more about that if you want. And then lastly, um, renounce, number three, renounce the idolatrous pantheon. Renounce the idolatrous pantheon. Um, the pantheon in, the, in uh, the, the Roman world, the Greek world, it was their like, um, their like gallery of gods. So there'd be like hundreds to thousands of gods in the pantheon. And uh, they even had, uh, we see this in Acts uh, 16, there's uh, a shrine to the unknown god. Uh, and so they were like, here's all the gods we can think of, and here's an unknown one just in case we missed one, right? Kind of god insurance. And, uh, 
And um, what I want to say is this, is today we still, we've talked about this before, we still worship idols in our culture. Uh, and, and in our culture right now, most people would say sex, money, and power are the ones people turn to. Uh, John Tyson calls them the counterfeit trinity, sex, money, and power. Um, and I, I uh, and again, it's the way that we approach them. Sex will give me everything I want. Money will give me everything I want. Power will give me everything I want. It'll, it'll be for me what God should be. It'll provide security and meaning and comfort and security and significance. Um, for time's sake, I'm not going to touch money or sex. We've done, we did a whole series on giving. We did a whole series on sex. If you guys want to dive into that, you can. But what I want to I talk about to close today is just the idea of power. Uh, some of you in this room, I know for a fact, you have been entrusted with power in your workplaces, in your businesses, in your schools, in your practices, at the firms you work at, the families you lead. And what you need to know is that power can be used to love Jesus and love, like you can love people with your power and service of Jesus, or you can use it to love yourself and use people. So you can use power to love people, or you can use power to, to love yourself and use people. Now, for a lot of uh, millennials and Gen Z, we kind of push back against all leadership and all power. We're trying to be boundaryless. No one tells me who I am. I get to decide everything about my identity, right? And all power is evil. All authority is evil, but power isn't inherently evil. How power is used determines its moral goodness or badness. And it's just like sex and money in that way. So not all leadership or power is bad. Leadership that sacrifices for us and sometimes tells us no or something else we don't want to hear is good for us. It's bad leadership when a bunch of people want to scapegoat an innocent party and the leader to get the approval of the people goes, yeah. That's what we see with Pilate in the Gospels. Good leadership goes, no, I love you guys too much. That's not the way we want to do this thing. Uh, King David on his deathbed said this about the power of good leadership. He says, the God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, again, that's the awareness that he or she is before God and accountable to God. That leader is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. Good leadership should bring hope, order, and nourishment. And friends, Christians should be the best leaders. I'm not talking results-driven leadership, though I do think that comes along with this. I think if you treat people well, God takes care of you over time. People in our spheres of influence should flourish because we're there. Whether you're a football coach or a teacher or a principal or a CEO or a therapist or a lawyer or an accountant or whatever other jobs are in the room right now, preschool teacher, priest, or wherever you're at, the people around you should flourish. Uh, or, or let me put it this way. As much as it's up to you, they're flourishing. Your influence on their lives is a good one. You're not the one crushing them with demands or underpaying them, or asking them to sacrifice time away from their family nonstop. 
You're not the one asking them to do unethical things. You're not the one using them to make yourself look good. You're not the one taking credit for stuff they did. When you look at the leadership of Jesus, it's a leadership that exists for the benefit of those who experience it. It's a cross-shaped leadership. Leadership's about taking responsibility for people and sacrificing for people, not using people. It's about loving people more than, you get, more than getting them to like you. I've had conversations where I have to, I've had to sit down with people and have very hard conversations that did not make them like me, definitely in the short term. And I only had them because I loved them. Bad leaders go, I, I want them to like me, and they do stuff for me, so I'll never make them mad. I'll never tell them they're wrong or I'm worried about them or that how they're treating someone isn't okay. Good leaders do that. But good leaders do that because they actually care about the person they're confronting. They want them to walk an abundant life in freedom. They want them to be safe. They want them to thrive. I'll close with this quote. Uh, John Tyson around the, these ideas, he says, we live in a world that has indulgence fatigue. We're actually sick of seeing people live for sex, money, and power in a constant cycle of burnout. Instead of being driven by sex, money, and power, we must be driven by faithfulness, generosity, and servanthood. We can still enjoy the great gift of God that is human sexuality, but we do so in a faithful covenantal framework. We can still experience the goodness of God that is granted through wealth, but we do it with a spirit of generosity and sharing. We can still occupy positions of influence, but we do not use that power to build our own little kingdoms. We do it to serve others in the spirit of Christ. When we bear witness to this paradigm shift, the world will take notice. Father, I pray that you would make us men and women who um, the world can't ignore. Like we stand out. We're not a people who go along with the hurting instincts of a polarized culture where, um, you know, our conservative or liberal, you know, chiefs tell us what to believe and how to live and who to be mad at, who to hate, who to blame. We thoughtfully engage problems and seek to, to bless as many people as possible. We'd be a people who aren't um, swept up with the anxiety of our cultural moment where everyone just seems to be so stressed out that we'd be a people who increasingly go, I'm okay. And actually my presence in believing I'm, I'm okay with my king, with my shepherd, that Psalm 23 posture, I'm okay. Just me being okay in your presence helps you to be okay. I know I mentioned the negative aspects of how we impact each other and talking about family systems and all that, Lord, but ultimately, um, as brothers and sisters in this church, we get to encourage one another, and we can infect the places we go to with goodness, not just not being anxious presences, but being a non-anxious, loving presence, where we bring security and peace stability to situations, peace and joy. Like when, when, when the men and women in this room walk into other rooms, people go, oh, man, peace is here. Joy is here. They can't necessarily fix the situation, but they're only going to add to our ability to be okay in the midst of that situation. 
Would we live lives that just say you're beautiful? Would, would our approaches to these big parts of our life cause people to go, wow, what is this? What is this peace? What is this joy? I pray that we'd be people who could live, live lives just really walking in the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. And God, I want this for our church. In the message it says, but what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. This description of the fruit of the Spirit, Father, would we be a fruitful people in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control are just who we are in relationship to you. And so, God, would we not just be a people who proclaim good news, would we be a people who um, demonstrate good news, the way we live our life, would give people somewhat, some taste of the kingdom, a kingdom that you died and rose again to give us. It's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.